All right, what's up, everyone? All right. In my last two sermons here at Hillside, I preached against theft. And I talked about three kinds of theft. Stealing from people, stealing from organizations, which included intellectual property. And last week I covered stealing from God, where it covered the topics of tithing and offerings. Hey, take care of the feedback. Excuse me for that. And last week I talked about tithing and how people have the wrong mindset for tithing to begin with. And when they see tithing, they view it as God taking money from them. And they always think of the question, Lord, how much money are you going to take from me? When in actuality, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that is on the earth, including this feedback right now, Everything that's on this earth belongs to the Lord. He is the owner. He's under the impression that everything he created, he owns it. And therefore, tithing and offerings is not a matter of ownership, but a matter of stewardship. And everything that we have, our car, our homes, our savings accounts, although our names might be on those things, we have to recognize it is God who gives us the power to, and the ability to produce wealth. He can take that ability away from you real quick, by the way. He is the owner of all things and he is under the impression that you are the steward. You are the manager of the things that he's entrusted to you. So instead of an issue of how much God are you going to take from me, the question really then becomes, how much Lord do I get to keep? And we talked about how God is very gracious. He gives you $20,000 of his money. And he says, you know what? You can keep 90%. I have that 10% set aside for my purposes, but 90% you manage it. But in actuality, we also know that it's not 90% because we have to pay taxes and we have to pay the bills and stuff like that. But anyway, still, the percentage you have remaining, you get to manage And out of that amount, God says he doesn't compel you or command you ever to give an offering. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about offerings, he says, this is not a command. God loves a cheerful giver, a person who has determined willingly. Even when the Apostle Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they said, you are under no compulsion to sell your property and give the proceeds here to the church. It was up to you. Then why did you lie about it? Why did you say you sold and brought all the proceeds before the apostles' feet when you actually kept back about 20% for yourself? You've not lied to man. You've lied to God. And then he dropped dead. And then his wife came in a little later. And she also dropped dead. Now, if you heard a story like that, At a local church here. 
All right, you would start taking offerings a little more seriously, wouldn't you? You would understand that if you lie about the offering, if you're doing it for the praises of man, you might get those praises, but there's a God who watches the heart. He weighs not only the offering in the basket, he weighs the motives of the heart. But coming back to stealing and robbing from God, that image comes from the book of Malachi chapter 3. And I talked about how in that chapter, God indicts the whole nation of Israel and says, return to me. And they say, how? And God responds to their question with a question. Will a man rob God? And they say, well, how will we be robbing you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. Like I said last week, it's better to rob a bank than to rob from God. Because you might get away from Udi Bank, City Bank, Deutsche Bank, whatever banks there are out there. But you steal from God, God will get you. Just because it's delayed doesn't mean it hasn't come or it will not come. Anyway, I talked about theft. Today I'm going to preach about a different topic. But it's a major, major problem that I see going on in the world today. Give me a little more volume without the feedback. Today I'm going to talk about debt. All right, you got to get your house in order, right? You listen to my two messages on theft. That's just the basics. You got to get your house in order. If you've been stealing, thieving, cheating, withholding the tithe, neglecting the offering, you got to get your house in order. But even after you get your house in order, I see so many young people. They are dealing with debt in a very poor and ungodly way. And today I'm going to talk about debt. Everybody say debt. D-E-B-T. But the B is supposed to be silent. So you say debt. Countries in the world today have a debt crisis. Let me talk about my country, the United States of America. By the way, Korea is not exempt from this. Korea also has a major problem. According to one website, the U.S. national debt as of today is $16.7 trillion. That might be just a mind-numbing number to you. Let me break it down. With an estimated population of about 316.8 million people in America, that means each person's share of this national debt is $52,900. And that's including children. So your little five-year-old cousin, 12-year-old friend, everyone's share is $52,900. Most of you don't even make $52,000. And that is your share of the national debt. And in fact, it is getting worse. Since September 2012, it has continued to increase an average of $1.85 billion per day. $1.85 billion per day. There's an article in Forbes magazine or on Forbes website, Forbes.com. It's a financial magazine, very uh, 
Good Financial Magazine has a good reputation. October 3rd, 2013, there's an article called Don't Believe the Debt Ceiling uh, Hype. Don't Believe the Debt Ceiling Hype. And in it, the author breaks down the real situation of the U.S. government and what it is facing right now and what the government's going to face if they raise the debt ceiling. Right now, a, a lot of government officials are wanting to raise the debt ceiling. Because uh, in the Constitution, U.S. Constitution, it says that the nation cannot default on its debt. That means you can't file for bankruptcy as the government of the United States. On top of that, there are certain measures where it says the U.S. government can only borrow up until this amount. That's called the debt ceiling. Right now, a lot of government officials want to raise that debt ceiling in order to continue a lot of the programs and funding that it has. But a lot of conservatives, you guys know, are trying to not raise the debt ceiling and deal with the real heart of the issue. And this Forbes.com uh, author, artic- the author of this article, says instead of raising the debt ceiling, what the government needs to do is prioritize. I'm, I always can't say that word. How do you say pri- <laughs> prioritize? Prioritize. What the government needs to do is prioritize its expenses and keep it under the revenue that the government collects. Just like ordinary Americans do. And I was surprised to find that the U.S. government must pay interest on the national debt. $240 billion per year in interest alone. Social security payments are $860 billion per year. Huge chunk that's making the national debt worse. Raising the debt ceiling, the author says, is a bad idea. It's like raising your credit card limit because your credit card is maxed out. If you've maxed out your credit card and you don't have the ability to pay it off next month, it's probably a good indication that the problem is not your credit limit, The problem is you don't know how to steward your money very well. You might be overspending a little bit. And why would you be spending money you don't have? So the article argues that the American families are currently, they're having to make a lot of uh, budget cuts because they have a lower income overall. Uh, most middle-class middle, um, American families are, have a lower income right now, so they have to tighten their budget, and perhaps it's time for the U.S. government to learn how to stay within a budget, too. The U.S. government has a real problem with debt right now. But not only do countries have a debt crisis, but many individuals are facing a debt crisis how many of you in here you have credit card debt you have a balance of credit card debt that each month is collecting at 15.9% interest 16% interest some of you 22% interest how many of you in here you have a college loan debt Or a 
car loan or a mortgage. How many of you have had a mortgage and then because of the housing bubble bursting, your house needed to be foreclosed on? You know what that means, right? For people who are not good with economics, here's what that means. That means you take out a mortgage. Let's say your house is worth $300,000. You put down $50,000. You borrow from the bank $250,000 to get the house. Now, that house is now yours. But technically, it's really the bank's. Why? Because the majority of the price of that house is paid for by the bank. And now you're paying the bank back. That's called a mortgage. A mortgage is a loan you take on a physical property. What happened at the housing bubble was when the housing bubble burst, meaning that prices of homes in America were highly inflated. They were not justified. They were way above what it should have been. And when certain people on Wall Street made some stupid moves, some selfish things, when they did some selfish things, it set off this huge burst of the economy and one place that was hard hit was in mortgages. And so that $300,000 house all of a sudden got valued at $110,000 overnight. But you still have to pay off $250,000 on a house that costs you $110,000, less than half that price. What are you going to do? Are you going to keep paying off $250,000 in loans? No, a lot of people, they decide to walk away from that. And then the bank will foreclose, and then they kick you out of your home. you got to go rent out an apartment like everybody else. Today, we don't only have nations that are going through debt crisis. We have a huge epidemic of individuals that are in a debt crisis. And I'm going to talk about three things that I believe are contributing to this crisis, especially among young people. And they all begin with the letter C. The first... Is college tuition. The second is credit cards. And the third is covetousness. <laughs> college tuition. College tuition today, especially in America, particularly in America, used to be a good investment. You pay I don't know, back in the day, people pay like $7,000 a year, $8,000 a year, including housing. It wasn't that long ago. And they will graduate with a bachelor's. If they want a master's degree, they go back. They pay about $9,000 a year. You have to pay a little bit more for grad school. And they will graduate, and many times people, their parents will help out. They get a grant scholarship there, and then take out a loan for the rest. And even when they graduated, they were able to command a much higher income. So the investment of paying that high tuition was always, it resulted in a decent return. But what has happened is, since the 90s, is college tuition has been rising at a rate far greater than inflation. And far greater, I mean, we don't even really know how the colleges are spending it. But they keep on raising that thing. I remember when I was a student at NYU. I went to New York University Stern Business School. The reason I went to Stern was because they, had, they said 
supposedly they have a 99.9% job placement rate when you graduate. It's a complete lie, by the way. They told me that in 97. When I graduated in 2001, there was a financial crisis, you guys remember. 9-11 also took place that year. The dot-com boom burst. And all these young millionaires all of a sudden went broke overnight. The economy took a nosedive. Everybody got laid off. In my class, everybody in the year 2000, their junior year, they got hired at Enron. Remember Enron? I remember I walked up to the Enron booth at the job fair. And they were like, Where, what school you go? I go, NYU Stern. They're like, oh, young man, you need, to, you need to learn about energy trading. I was like, what is that? <laughs> you don't know how to trade. We, we, we trade energy here. I said, how do you trade energy? What do we talk about? They said, we'll fly you out to Houston if you sign up right here for a job interview. Now, all my friends, they signed up. They went down to Houston, got a free trip to Houston. But I said, man, I'm not, I'm not touching that. What is energy trading? What is that? And I, when they, and I asked them, how do you make money? They couldn't, they t- couldn't describe it. I don't think they really knew. Because remember, the CEOs kept doing circles around them, sp- spinning circles and, and making a lot of hype, but not really providing a substantial revenue-making model. Anyway, Enron was a, was a complete, man, the Lord protected me from Enron. But I remember all my friends got hired, Citigroup. I went to final rounds with Citigroup. You know, <laughs> there were like hundreds upon hundreds of, uh, of applicants. I made the first round cut. They brought in like 50 uh, young people. I made, I made the second round. Actually, I got cut on the second round. But one of the managers was like, I like you so much, Christian. I'm going to set up another second round interview for you, just for you. And I went in. I was like, oh, dang, this is it. This is the favor. I'm definitely going to get this job. And then I went in. And I met this, like, manager dude, and he just wasn't having me. He didn't like me. He just looked at me. He didn't like me. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes, uh, like, the job interview is not a science. They just feel you out. They look at you. They don't think you're too short. <laughs> like, they don't like the way you were dressed. I don't know what it was, right? He just didn't like me. I knew he didn't like me. So I got cut. I, I, God wouldn't let me work at Citigroup. But all my friends, they got their jobs right before they graduated. And in 2001, I saw all of them getting laid off one by one by one. 99.9% job placement rate. Yeah, when everything's perfect. Now, how, how did I get into that? College tuition. Now, when I was an NYU student, I'm sorry. Let's talk about the topic. I remember tuition was very high. NYU is one of the most expensive private schools in the nation. And I remember sophomore year budgeting for the previous year's tuition. But when I got there, there was like $3,000 left on the balance. I was like, what's going on? They're like, well, we raised the tuition. If you ever go to the NYU bursar's bursar's office, right? that's where you pay your bill. They are cutthroat. I mean, they do not care nothing except money. So if you don't got the money, I don't care who you know at the school, you are not going to be enrolled. Man, I, I used to like have to pray and forgive them before I go in because they were just so cruel. But yeah, they were telling me the tuition got raised. The following year, I went back, budgeted for the previous year. You know, what's this 3500 Why is there a bigger bill now? I paid up. We, we raised tuition again. 
They just kept on raising tuition on me every year I was there. After I graduated, they kept on raising tuition, even a bigger rate. I look back and I was like, I'm glad I, I'm done with that. <laughs> all y'all hoobies. Good luck. And I told all the young people I met in high school and whatnot, I was like, don't go to NYU, all right? It's a good school and whatnot, but uh, it ain't that good. It is expensive. It used to be a sound, a good investment, but now it's not such a sound investment. You have to think to yourself, just because you got into Harvard doesn't mean you should go to Harvard. You know, Korean students here, they think, man, I, I get a high score. I get admitted to an Ivy League. Oh, I'm in. I'm going. I'm set for life. No, you ain't. Even if you get into Harvard and you go to Harvard, by the way, you are an exchange student. Harvard's not going to give you nothing most of the times. Harvard's going to be like, pay up, and then you can come. And so you, you put your whole family in this big old debt, and your family's thinking, oh, yeah, he's going to Harvard. We're going to make a lot of money. Yeah, you might make a little bit of money, but you ain't going to make that much money. You have, we have to reassess the value of college tuition today, college education today. You know what a lot of smart Americans are doing? They're going to college in Canada. <laughs> uh, it's true. Newspaper articles are publishing a trend right now among American high school graduates. They're going to, they're going to Canada. Canada's like $500 a year or something. Real cheap. I'm playing. I don't know if it's that cheap. It's a lot cheaper than America. I never heard of McGill University until recently. And as you guys know, a lot of you exchange students here that are from Europe, Malaysia, Indonesia, different countries here, a lot of, there's a lot of college students we have here in this room right now. You guys chose to come to Korea rather than go study in America just because Korea is a lot cheaper for exchange programs. And you know what? I commend you. <laughs> Even though you sit through classes where the professors can't speak English for the life of them, well, look, you're still saving a whole lot of money. Credit cards contributing to this debt crisis among individuals. You know, the high interest rate on credit cards and the lack of education among the general public about interest rates and minimum payments are keeping people stuck in back-breaking debt. Credit card companies prey on customers who are uneducated about interest rates. They prey on undisciplined customers who do not make their payment on time. In fact, a lot of these credit card companies and even banks today, the majority of their revenue is coming from late payment fees and penalty fees. That's one thing that's great about Korea. You know, I got this debit cards in my pocket. I go to, I go to a store at 7-Eleven, you know, you buy a $2 drink or something like that but I only have a dollar left in my bank account, it, it just denies me. And then they say, oh, 다른 card 있습니까? Do you have another card? You know, that's it. They don't say, oh, you just probably have to pay a $25 penalty for that, buying a $2 drink, tough luck on you. But in America, if you hit your credit card limit, they let it go through. And then they tack you on with a $40, late, uh, $40 overdraft fee or $40 over the limit fee. That's how they get you in America. Credit card companies, man, they are not your friends. 
if you didn't figure that out. Because you thought, oh, here's some nice people that are letting me borrow all this money so that I can go buy things for myself and pay it off later. What a wonderful concept. They must be my friend. No, they're not. <laughs> they're robbing you blind and you don't even see it. If you go on a website, any website that calculates credit card interest, um, interest and you, do, you put your balance in, and then you tell them what your minimum payment is, it'll tell you how many years it'll take for you to actually pay off that balance. And then how much interest you'll pay in, over that term. So for example, if you have like a, I don't know, $7,000 credit card balance, which is quite high, and your interest rate is like 19%, and then your minimum payment is like $90 a month. If you try to pay off that $7,000 by paying $90 a month, I mean, it'll tell you. It'll take you like 90 years to pay it off, and over that 90 years, you will have paid over $15,000 in interest, more than the original balance. The minimum payment is not is called the stupid man's payment. Really, that's what it really is. If you pay this amount, you will never pay this off. That's what, that's what that minimum payment says to you. If you pay just a little bit more than the minimum payment, your, your chances are really good. If you pay 50% above the minimum payment, you're paying, your chances are looking way better. But you pay the minimum payment, it is calculated to keep you trapped. Third, covetousness. Covetousness or materialism, which is a form of covetousness, is a major problem in our generation today. People keep spending money that they don't have. To acquire things that they don't really need to please people that they don't really like. <laughs> right? You've seen that on the internet, right? People say it all the time. Why are you spending all that money using your credit card to get plastic surgery to please people? That are shallow and superficial and fake that you don't even like. Why are you doing that to yourself? Why are you spending all this money on brand name clothes and brand name bags? Now, if you if you really like it and you saved up for it, then go God bless you, go get that brand name bag. But you don't have the money to get a brand name bag. And you go get it. So you can fit in. What is going on? Is materialism, covetousness? is a huge problem in the world today, especially among young people. In this church, on our leadership, amongst my staff, I have been sorely disappointed again and again and again at how people view debt and how people are not dealing with debt. And because everybody seems to be in debt, they think, oh, this must be okay. I can deal with this at whatever pace I want. You know, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, when you are allowing your heart to give in to covetousness, you're also allowing your heart to give in to the love of money. Because many times you want certain things that you don't have the money to get. What do, you, what do you focus on? You focus on money. And you think, man, if I just have more money, then I can have these things. 
It doesn't start with, you look at money. Oh, I'm in love with money. I need more money. No, it's, I need that bag. And for me to get that bag, I need money. 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 <laughs> more money, more money, more money, right? And the Bible warns us against the love of money. First Timothy chapter 6. Why don't you turn there with me? First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. I'm sorry, can you get the AC on? First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to read in the ESV. First Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. By the way, that Gucci bag ain't going with you. When Jesus returns, Jesus returns and put it down. Put it down, put it down, let's go. When you die, you can't take it with you. Egyptians thought, you know, oh yeah, Gucci bags up in the tomb, you know. No, 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 that was all foolishness. And none of them pharaohs went into the afterlife with the Gucci bag. Can't take nothing with you. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, or other words, into a trap, into many senseless, that's foolish, stupid, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Look how covetousness is connected to ruin and destruction. And verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, it is through this covetousness that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Covetousness is not a light matter. It's not a funny matter. Now, I'm all for enjoying good things on the earth. But you got to be able to afford it. You got to be able to have a budget for it. You got a budget for it, then enjoy it. But if you don't have that money, don't go putting yourself into debt to feed that covetousness. Because as the Bible says, it leads people into temptation, into a trap, and many harmful senseless, stupid desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Get the imagery. Covetousness, ruin and destruction. They go together. A lot of times we think covetousness, oh yeah, Louis Vuitton. Living large. Brand name goods. No, covetousness, ruin and destruction. We got to learn how to equate those two in the mind. Hebrews 13, 5 says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 and 2, it says, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. 
the sign, one of the signs of the end times is there's going to be an increase in covetousness in the world. But as the church, we got to come out and be separate from them. We are not to go and be conformed to the patterns of covetousness in the world. We need to learn how to keep ourselves free from the love of money. Amen? Amen. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. You either love the one, hate the other. You obey one and despise the other. No man can serve both God and money. A lot of times, the idolatry that we struggle with is not with some Buddhist idol, some Hindu idol. A lot of times in our generation, the idolatry we deal with is money. Covetousness that leads to money. And remember, I taught in the past, last year in my financial series, how the Bible equates covetousness with idolatry. Go back to my financial series, and I talk about that theme. And it's very surprising because people don't think covetousness and idolatry. But the Bible makes it clear that they're very clearly connected. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does my financial situation have to do with my spiritual walk? And I will submit to you today, it has to do with everything. Let me talk about debt. Number one, debt results in slavery. The word of God says in Proverbs 22, verse 7, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. Whenever there is debt, and that debt is not controlled, there's no self-control regarding that debt, it results in slavery. Check this out. If you have a lot of debt, let me make it practical for you. God has this wonderful plan for your life. A plan for you to do nonprofit work. A plan for you to raise up an incredible business. A plan for you to be in the entertainment industry. A plan for you to be in full-time ministry. God's got these wonderful plans. And God has a very specific schedule and timing for those plans. But because you have been constantly getting the new iPad and the new iPhone or the new brand name clothing, because you're constantly giving yourselves into covetousness and debt, when God says, it's time to go, you can't move. You see, we ought to live our lives in such a way, when God says go, it's like, I'm on, Lord. It's on. But many of us, you know, in the, in the Gospels, there was this uh, rich young ruler. Jesus said, follow me. He said, everything you got, follow me. You'll be rich in heaven. The rich young ruler couldn't do it because of his great riches. But before you look down on the rich young ruler for not following Jesus, you should also consider how you also have a, same, a similar lack of mobility. But it's not because you have too much money. It's because you got too much debt. Jesus says, follow me. And you say, oh, oh Lord, uh, I need to pay off my credit card debt first. Jesus said, I want you to go to the nations. Uh, well, Lord, uh, my cousins, my relatives told me to go to community college for two years and then transfer. But I chose to just go four years at this private college. And now I'm $50,000 in debt. 
uh, I need to take care of this first, Lord. It's the same thing. You put yourself in slavery and you don't even know it. And so when God says go, you can't move. Same thing with marriage. So many of you in here, you want to get married. But as the pastor of the house, how do I deal with romantic relationships here? I hold the men accountable to their finances. I require the men to have a certain amount of savings. Why? Because when you romance a girl and you marry a girl, you also are not just falling in love. You're also having to deal with a financial situation there. You got to provide for her. If she's not, if she's pregnant, she can't work. You got to provide for her. It's a financial thing. But a lot of times you think, oh, finance is the last thing in my mind. What, what's finances got to do with me dating this girl? Pastor Christian, you're too harsh. Pastor Christian, why can't you just let me proceed? If I let you proceed, the father-in-law, the, the father of that girl is going to ask you the same question. And you're going to look like a deer in headlights. How come nobody told me about this? And you start sweating bullets. You can't answer for the life of you because you haven't thought about it. So many of you in here, you want to get married. But look, preparation for marriage involves minimizing your debt or eliminating it altogether. For the brother and the sister. she looks like to you. I don't care how attractive she is. <laughs> Deal with your debt and make sure that she's dealing with hers. Maybe it won't be completely gone, but you guys should have a momentum on your way to paying that stuff off. You know, I'm really proud of uh, one of our church alumni. His name is Josh Brooker. Josh was a part of Diddy's small group. Really funny dude. He was like one of the, before, um, before he left, he was the funniest guy at our church. This is a tall white guy with a beard. Um, and recently he put on his Facebook status that after like two years of marriage with his uh, newlywed wife, that they pinched and tightened their budget so that over that first couple years of marriage, I think three years now, they were able to completely, the other day, they were able to be completely debt-free. All student loan, credit card, their, everything was paid off. And they were just, just putting it on their status update. And you know what? We have to celebrate that. Because there's not a lot of young people who do that. They just call the credit card, can you raise my limit a little more? No, you got to manage your finances and get that debt out. I was so proud of him. So proud of him. And in fact, the Lord has led him recently to go into the ministry. He's been hired by his church as a pastor there. Really proud of him. Whether you are already married or you want to get married. Debt has everything to do with that marriage. You know why? Because debt results in slavery. And God does not want you to be a slave to money, to be a slave to your lenders, 
You know, in the entertainment business, you got to be careful here in Korea. You got to be, be careful in America. A lot of times, when you want an entertainment company to produce your record, they make you sign like a six to seven year contract. And as part of that contract, they'll give you an all-purpose loan. And they will say, we will invest $300,000 in your first album. But this is not money for free. You got to pay this back through the proceeds you make from the sales of your album. And a lot of young people go, wow, this is great. These people must love me. These people, they're so kind and nice until they sign off. And then they say, your nose is too big. Your chin is too thick. Your eyes are too small, which is pretty much everybody in all of Asia. (laughs) And they make you get plastic surgery. Why? Because, look, you got this huge debt now. And you want us to help produce this album? You got to help us help you. And so you become this cookie-cutter K-pop star. And you start making all this music. And you think you're going to produce your album by yourself. And then there's nine other girls that audition for a K-pop group. Or, or like there's, what was it, one of the male groups these days? What is it, 16, 16 guys or 18 guys, something like that. And you realize, I ain't going to make no money off these albums. You could sell 100,000 records. What the, what's the, you're going to get a $20 check. <laughs> then you realize, oh, man, I'm never going to be able to pay off this debt. And then they, you say, well, I, I, wanna, I don't want to work on Sunday. I, I'm, a, I'm Christian. I want to worship the Lord. And they say, no, you're not. You're going to work on Sunday. And you go, wait a minute. Maybe they're right. I should just work on Sunday. Um, maybe I can worship God on Saturday. No, nope, you're going to work on Saturday too. Maybe I can worship God on Monday. Nope, you're going to work on Monday too. And you realize, wait, wait, what is going on? And you go, man, I want to be free from this. Well, you can't be free because you owe a lot of money. A lot of times entertainment companies, the way they operate is when you sign, you become a slave to that company. The decisions you want to make you can no longer make. They control everything about you. And that's why you got to be very careful when entering any entertainment industry in America or in Korea. You know, uh, Prince, amazing, brilliant musician. You know, at one time he had to be called the artist formerly known as Prince. You know why? Because his record company signed this contract and they were like, you don't even own your name. And the guy's like, I'm Prince. Let me go. I'm Prince. And they said, no, you cannot use that name anymore. So Prince is like, all right, well, I'm going to start my own record company. And uh, I'm going to call myself the artist formerly known as Prince. What's up now? <laughs> you know what's going on, right? It's slavery is what's going on. You know, if you really think about it, what some record companies do is not that different from pimps. Because if you ever answer an ad, to pour drinks at some bar or something, a lot of times, more than half those ads are connected with prostitution. And so they'll say, um, you know what? We'll fly out to America, do this job for six months. You'll get about $50,000 during that time. And then you can fly back and you can pay off all your debt. A lot of times these girls, there was an uh, article in San Francisco Chronicle a few years ago, featured a Korean girl from Busan that had like $25,000 in credit card debt or something like that, and she couldn't pay it off. So embarrassed to ask her parents, you know what she did? She answered one of these ads. 
You know what? The first thing they did, they put her on an airplane. First, they checked her out, did an interview, and then looked at her physical features, and then put her on an airplane, which she thought was going to L.A., but actually landed in Mexico. And she didn't have the proper visa documentation and whatnot, and so they forged it for her, and then they said, this costs $3,000. You have to pay this back. And then told her to get in the back of a truck, go across the border. She got to L.A. And they said, all right, here's your, uh, here's your job. You can pour drinks. And you'll make $12 an hour. But if you want to make more money, because, by the way, the airplane ticket and the car ride across the border, that costs us $5,000. Now you're in $7,500 debt. And, by the way, there's interest every month on this debt. So if you want to pay this off, it's going to probably take you about four years. But if you do this other job, you'll pay it off a lot sooner. So she ended up doing prostitution in L.A., in K-Town. And so the whole article chronicled what she went through. That's really sad. But a lot of times, this is how pimps operate. They lure you, they lie to you, and then they enslave you. That's because the Bible is warning us. The borrower is servant, is slave to the lender. God does not want you to live in slavery. God wants you to live in freedom. The Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen? So we got to understand that debt has to do with slavery. And God wants us free from that slavery. Jesus said, what is good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? But a lot of times we talk about rock and roll artists signing off their soul to the devil, selling their soul to the devil. That's essentially what they do when they sign with some of these record companies. They're essentially selling their soul to the devil. Second, debt disables you from being a blessing. The Bible says you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to that promise. The promise and the blessing given to Abraham is that you will be blessed to be a blessing to all nations. And the Bible says we're the offspring of Abraham. We inherit that promise. But if our lives are to be blessed to be a blessing, how can we be a blessing when we're in debt all the time? Because of our foolish and covetous decisions. God does not want you to borrow. You know, the Bible doesn't say God loves a cheerful borrower. A cheerful spender. It says God loves a cheerful giver. But how can you ever give when you are in debt for the rest of your life? Even the giving that you do puts you in more debt. Debt disables you from being a blessing. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. You will lend and not borrow. That's God's will for you, is that you be blessed to be a blessing, not for you to go into debt and become a burden. A burden to your family members, a burden to your friends, a burden to your church community. It's not God's will for you. For you to do the will of God, you got to be debt free. You think this has nothing to do with the will of God, but it's got everything to do with the will of God. 
In fact, in Luke 6, Jesus said, when you lend, give without expecting anything in return. People are like, I can't do that. I can never do that. Jesus said, if somebody asks, then just give it to them. And when you give it to them, don't expect nothing in return. Because pagans, they lend expecting full payment. What good is that to you? What reward do you get? But when you give, you lend, don't expect no repayment. Just give. And if the person can't pay it back, just be like, all right, I'm never going to lend to you again. But, you know, you're good. I'm, I'm going to cancel that debt. What was Jesus? A lot of us, we have a hard time with this passage. You know why? Because you're in debt. That's why. If you had no debt, you'd be like, all right, I got some money to spare. I could give like that. I'm down with that. But when you are like $50,000 in credit card debt and student loan debt and mortgage debt and car loan debt. And by the way, car loans, buying a new car is one of the worst, worst investments you can make. You guys know that? You guys know that? The moment you buy a new car and you drive it off the lot, the value of that car decreases from 15 to 25%. Just the moment you drive it off, one mile, just <laughs> drive it down. I want a refund. Okay, we'll give you a refund, but it's going to be 85% of the price of the car. 80% of the price of the car. You didn't know that, right? That's why it's smart sometimes to get a pre-owned car or a used car. Why? You let somebody else drive that thing off and save yourself some money. How are we ever to have this attitude of lending without expecting repayment? How are we able to have that kind of attitude of blessing others when you were in debt the whole time? You see, debt disables you from being a blessing. And last, debt is poor stewardship. What did I talk about last week? The difference between ownership and stewardship. Remember, your money is not just your money. When God looks down from heaven, you are a steward. You are a manager of his money. So when you spend money that you don't have, not only are you doing something that most economists will say is stupid, God says, what are you doing? You're being a poor steward of my money. It's like if I give Pastor Isaac $20,000. And I tell him, I got to go to Australia next week. Can you cut up, uh, can you give out all the payroll checks and pay all of the rent and utilities for our church office and staff? If Isaac gets that 20000 and he says, all right, I'm going to go and pay off everything. I'm going to do what Pastor Christian asked me to do. And on his way, he looks inside of a guitar store. And he says, oh, man, I hear voices. It's that guitar in the window. That tailor, custom-made, mahogany wood, solid top guitar is just calling my name. I need to go in there. I just want, I just want to play it. I just want to play it. I'm just going to go and play Oh, I'm in love. <laughs> How much is the guitar? $16,000. $12,000. Well, um, maybe I could just use some of this payroll money. Get the guitar now, and then I'll figure out a way to get get the money later somehow. 
I ask another friend or something. I borrow money from him. I borrow money from a family. I'm, I'm, I just need a guitar now. I need to have it now. And so he uses the payroll money to buy a Taylor guitar for himself. What would you call that person? Not just a thief. That's just because he's not intending to steal the money. Remember, he's simply trying to pay it back, but on his terms and according to what he thinks is his wisdom. He's being a poor steward. He's being a poor manager of that money. Why? Because payroll needs to go out on time. Rent bills need to go out on time. When they're late, they're late payments to be made. You would be upset if somebody did that with your money, wouldn't you? Well, what do you think God thinks? Every time God gives you a paycheck and you're like, oh, I need to have this Infinity Z car now. I need to have this guitar now. I need to have this, this uh, computer now. And God says, well, all right, well, can you afford it? Have you budgeted for it? And he said, oh, I didn't really think about it, so uh, I don't have the money for it. But actually, I do have money for it. It's just, you know, I just got to borrow a little money. But there's companies that help me to borrow this money. And I just have to pay them a little bit to uh, borrow the money. So you know what? Lord, I think I'm going to buy it today. You are spending money you don't have. And you're spending money that God is saying, no, you're not supposed to use it on that. Going into debt is poor stewardship of God's money. Uh, I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, straight out of college, when I was in college, I asked God for a car. I'm doing, I'm doing good, Naima. I asked God for a car, and God gave me a car. I prayed in college, God gave me a car. Somebody at my church gave me an 88 Toyota Celica GT manual transmission. I had never driven a manual car before, before that. Man, I almost died on that first ride home. Because the church, the church member was like, oh, just go, it's in the church parking lot. Just go pick it up. I'll leave the keys underneath the car tire. So I just went, and, I, and they said, you can, we'll, we'll sell it to you for $250. It's like, $250? I'll take it, yeah. And, and I was real arrogant, man, because I thought, yeah, how hard can manual transmission be? <laughs> for the people who know how to drive stick, man, you know what I'm talking about. I went up in there, and first of all, I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, uh, my friend uh, Tim was in an automatic transmission Mazda SUV, right? And he's sitting there, and he's like, what's wrong? He's like, I can't get the car to start. And so I start calling around friends. How do you get, how do you get a manual transmission car to start? And they're like, you knucklehead, you got to press the clutch. So you have to press down on the clutch for most cars, and then you turn the transmission on. I'm like, oh, and start turning on. But it, it hung like, boo, boo, boo. <laughs> I was like, what was that? This car, something wrong with this car. And then my friend's like, hey, hey, I think the car is in first transmission. It's in first gear. Take it out of first gear. So I take it out of first gear. I start the car back up. I'm like, yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> and it was, it was parked face facing forward. So I had to back this thing up. It's one thing to put it in first gear. One thing to go backward. I was like, all right, let me go. What was that? I think something wrong with this car. And I was like, um, I asked my friend Tim, hey, Tim, how do you drive a, how do you drive a stick? 
And he's like, I, I don't know. It can't be that hard. I think you like pl- press the clutch and then you put it in gear or something like that. I was like, all right. So I just kind of get you. I tried it again. Do-go, do-go. I got so scared. I thought I was going to hit the car behind me, then the side of me. I, I was just like, all right, maybe I just, just leave this alone. So then on Sunday, the owner of the vehicle, he taught me how to drive stick. And so I learned, like, like crash course. And I realized there's like this, um, you got to balance the clutch and the gas. A lot harder than, than it sounds. A lot harder than it sounds. Anyway, me being my arrogant young self, after that one little uh, crash course, I decided to drive into Manhattan. And I went and I, and I want to, I want to show off to my friends the goodness of God. So I was like, hey, yeah, 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 I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to pick you up down in the West Village. So I go pick up my friends. They get in the car and everyone's like, wow, this is awesome. Wow, I can't believe you got a car for $200. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> don't worry, y'all. Don't worry. I, I'm just getting the hang of it. Nothing wrong with the car. I'm just getting the hang of it. Just getting the hang of it. <laughs> like, I didn't know how much gas to give, so I gave too much. So I kept peeling the t- tires, uh, and so it was smoke up. And so every time I hit a red light, and I had when, the, when it turned green, I'd be like, <laughs> and you know how New Yorkers are, right? They're driving by, idiot! And my, fr- my friends are sitting in the back like, uh, Christian, I don't think you know how to drive stick. I'm like, chill, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. It was like the most stressful time in my life. <laughs> Getting it back to New Jersey, oh man. One, one long ride home. In the Lincoln Tunnel, oh, that was fun. You ever see tires peeling in the Lincoln Tunnel? It is loud. Loud. Anyway, um, I don't. That story is not what I wanted to tell. The story I wanted to tell. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. The story I wanted to tell was my next car. <laughs> anyway, after a couple of years, after a couple of years of driving this uh, '88 Toyota Celica, which uh, it really served me well, I decided to look for another used car. And, and just I had a little bit, of, a couple thousand dollars of savings. I was going to try to get another used car. And somebody at church was like, oh, well, I have a Hyundai Sonata. You know, it's about like 92 or 91. It was like an old Sonata. And they're like, I'll, I'll sell it to you for, you know, how much money do you have? And I was like, all right, well, m- maybe I'll think about it. And then she was like, what do you mean think about it? I'm, I'm letting you get the car at whatever price you want. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. Man. I think I believe in goodness of God. And so, you know, I'm going to keep praying a little longer. I prayed a little longer, and I, it took me to the Paramus Hyundai dealership. And I just went in just to see what some of the new Hyundais look like. Because, you know, at that time, Hyundais were getting, like, they were going really up, and quality had gotten really good. And then the salesman took me and was like, how much money you got? I got this much. I, I, I'm just looking around. I just want to see what the new models look like. He's like, hey, we want to test drive one? I was like, oh, I guess it can't hurt. You know how to drive stick? I said, yeah, I know how to drive stick. <laughs> He's like, well, look, we got, we got a couple of these red Hyundai Elantras, right? Nobody knows how to drive stick these days. We're selling these things like 20% off the market price. 
You want to test drive one? So I test drive that thing, and I just fall in love. Like, I allowed my heart of covetousness, and I just was like, hold it on. I was like, and actually, during the test drive, the car just died. You know what happened? We ran out of gas. <laughs> right? Trippy thing. It never happened during a test drive, right? This guy's, in all my years of selling cars, this has never happened to me. And then he walks down the gas station with like a Sprite bottle, fills it up with a little bit of gasoline, comes back, pours it in, and says, all right, let's go. And the car, you know, it worked great. Even after that, I wasn't worried about the car and something wrong with it. I just, I just, I need to get this. So we get back to his office and he's like, you know what? We can work with you. We can give you a low interest loan. You can get this thing today. You can drive it off. It's yours. And I was like, oh, you must be my friend. You want to help me to experience the goodness of God for my life? You must love me. You are my friend. And he's like, yeah, man, buddy, come on, come on. High five right here. High five. You know, them car salesmen, they do everything to manipulate you. And when he got me with a high five, I was like, you are my best friend. And uh, that day, I drove off the red Hyundai Elantra. Put down, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars, which is all the savings I had. And took out a loan on the rest of the price of the car. Of course, I drive it off the lot. I get home. And in New Jersey, New Jersey has the highest car insurance rates in the entire country. You guys didn't know. Higher than Virginia, Northern Virginia, believe me. And whenever you take out a loan on a car, you got to get full coverage on the car. Because the car doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the bank. So the bank requires that you have full coverage. And at that time, I was like 22 years old. 23 years old, whatever age I was, right? 21, was it 20? Was it before I graduated from college? That's crazy. Anyway, I don't know what, what it was, but I go and apply for insurance and every insurance company laughs in my face. They say, what? How old are you? What? What color is the car? By the way, if you have a red car, you get high. I'm like, it's a Hyundai. It ain't no sports car. Come on. They're like, no, we can't insure you. You know, we could insure you. But it'll be $5,000 a year. Like $5,000 for insurance? You're crazy. Calling Geico. <laughs> My cousin works for Geico. Geico's like, we can't insure you. I'm sorry. We cannot insure you. We cannot save. We cannot help you save up to 10% on car insurance. <laughs> Nobody will insure me. Nobody. So I called up the car dealer. And I said, sir, I have a little problem in my hands. I can't get car insurance. So, um, can I get a refund? <laughs> I'm sure I asked, can I get a refund? And the guy said, that's your problem. Like, they are a straight up cutthroat at the Primus dealer. I do not recommend people go there. They're mad, like, skeevy. And, uh, skivvy. I don't know. I, I make them worse. <laughs> and so, I asked them, all right, is there anything I can do? Can you help me to get car insurance? He's like, that's your problem. Look, you drove that thing off. We can give you a refund. But he, he was like, it's going to be 70% of the price of the car. I'm like, what? I drove it off the lot like two days ago. He's like, well, that's, that's, that's tough luck. That's the way it works here. I just want to fight him. I just want to fight him and then have the Lord forgive me afterward. 
And so I went home and I was just crying out to the Lord. Like, I was like, Lord, I'm sorry, I messed up. Lord, help me, Lord. And then my mama called. And I was afraid to tell my mom everything. Because I knew she would say, you knucklehead, you, you, you pavo gotten no me. I was scared, but, you know, I thought that was the Lord somehow answering my prayer. And I was like, you know, I got to just be honest with my mom. I'm in this tight spot. I can't get insured. What am I going to do with this car? I can't, you know, I'm going to hardly have a, I'm going to have a tough time just paying the monthly loans. You know, like, what do I do? So I told my mom the whole situation. And my mom just rebuked me, rebuked me. And then three days later, she called back. And she said, God must like you. Because I share with my friend who owns a dry cleaner. And my mom don't have no money. I share with my friend who was a dry cleaner. And my friend offered to pay off the car. And, and I'm going to pay off my friend. Monthly payments. And when I heard that, I was just filled with thanksgiving. And the funny thing is, I just thought, oh, wow, God is so good to me. This must have been God's will all along. It's for me to go and get this car, and then God used my mom's friend to pay it off, and now we just got to pay her back. I don't have to pay with these, I don't deal with these high interest rates. I don't have to get full coverage. I just get regular coverage, whatnot. This must have been God's will for me all along. Thank you, Lord. Now that I look back, that was not God's will for me all along. I mean, there were so many clear signs all along the process. God was like, don't buy it, don't buy it, don't buy it. The car on the test drive dying, what happened? I don't know. Maybe it's the gas, or maybe it's the gas. Whose car dies during a test drive? That was God saying, don't buy this car! But I, I ignored it. I ignored it, and I went, and I just bought it anyway. And I bought something out of my covetousness that I actually didn't have the money for. And you know what? All God did was he did Romans 8.28. Out of my foolish mistakes, he was gracious to me and turned it around for good. But a lesson that I didn't learn that year was that debt has to do with slavery, debt, disables me from being a blessing to others and debt is just poor stewardship. Shortly after I got this red car, I started to, God started to really deal with me about debt. At that time, let me confess, I had over $15,000 in credit card debt. So even the down payment I put on the car, I didn't actually have that money because I was already in debt. And NYU had put me back, like, I forget the full amount. It was close to $50,000 in student loans. And I remember thinking, I want to get married. It's like 22, 23 years. I want to get married, Lord. And I felt like the more I prayed about marriage, the more the Lord said, pay off this debt. Pay off this debt. Pay off this debt. And so what I did was I just started tightening my budget. And I confess right now from my 
college graduate graduation until I got married to Aaron. I like never bought clothing for myself. I just try to tighten my budget as much as I can. I actually didn't buy many shoes for myself either. So I just looked like a raggedy young man when I met her. It was God's grace that caused her to fall in love with me. And I made a commitment in my heart to tighten my budget and pay off my debt. And you know what? God met me in the middle. In 2005, when God called me to come to Korea, God was like, I got a mighty plan for you. But your first step is to come to Korea. I was reluctant to come to Korea because I was in love with another girl in New York at that time. But the Lord says, you leave that girl behind. Leave that girl behind. Come to Korea. Come to Korea. And so I was a worship leader at my local Presbyterian church in New Jersey. And I shared with the congregation. I said, I feel like the Lord is leading me to Korea. I prayed about it. And I feel like God is calling me to Korea. So I'll be leaving in, in about a month. After the service, the treasurer came up to me and said, somebody wrote you a check, but they want to remain anonymous. So I got to write you a separate check from the church. Guess how much it is? I was like, I don't know. $200? Maybe they were feeling generous. $500? Because I was support raising with CCC at the time. I was full-time staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. The treasurer said, no, it's $9,000. And I was like, what? You count the zeros? It says right there, $9,000. I'm going to make it out to your name. The Lord confirmed, clearly, I want you in Korea. Now we all know why he wanted me in Korea, right? I didn't know I was going to be a pastor of New Philly, all this stuff. Like, I didn't know signs and wonders were going to break out through my ministry. I didn't know all y'all people were going to get set free and be all happy about God. I didn't, I didn't know none of that. God just showed me the next step, which was come to Korea. But one of my biggest issues on my heart was, well, you, Lord, you've been leading me to pay off this debt. I'm going to go into more debt to move to Korea. And that's when the $9,000 came. And God says, no, you use this. You, you do. And the Lord didn't put it on my heart. You pay off all your debt. The Lord was like, what are you going to do with this? I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use some of the money for the moving costs. But, you know, I was a young man. I didn't have that much stuff to move. And I used the majority of that $9,000 to pay off my $15,000 credit card debt. By the time I got to Korea in September, there was an investment banker who I never met in my life. One of my friends in New York was like, my investment banker friend heard about your ministry and he wants to write you a check. And I was like, how much is it for? It's like $1,000 or something. It's like, oh, wow, I'm so thankful. I never met this guy. So I get the check. I pay off my credit card debt. Then a couple weeks later, she says, he wants to uh, sow in another seed. I said, how much? $2,750. So I take that $2,750 and around October of 2005, I go off to pay off my credit cards. And guess what the balance of my credit card was? 2700 God said, keep the change. <laughs> the $9,000 check, the $1,250, whatever check, and then the $2,750 check all came within a period of two months. I went from... Five-figure credit card debt to zero. And after that, the Lord said, don't you ever (laughs) enslave yourself like that again. 
But God wasn't done. I had still still a loan debt that I had to pay off. And so from that forward on, I just kept on saving and paying off my student loans, paying off my student loans, and paying off my student loans. And along the way, I got to treat myself. But it wasn't I got to treat myself. Other people wanted to bless me. So people would kind of buy me a gift. Uh, Every laptop that I have owned ever, they were all gifts. So I got um, a laptop every two years, but that was always a gift. And so I'll be, I'll be content with what I had. I said, Lord, I'm just going to use this for your glory. But the Lord would always say, I want you to upgrade. And, and God would send somebody and move upon their hearts to, to give. Even the MacBook Air that I have primarily right now that I'm using, it was, it was an iPad that I got as a gift. And I sold the iPad. And so I put in a little money for this laptop. And I, and I got the MacBook Air. See, I mean, God, if he wants to be good to you, he'll be good to you. You don't got to go out of your way and put yourself in debt to be good to yourself. Let the fa- father's better at doing that. Let the father be good to you. But as for you, you got to learn to be debt free. The whole point of my message today is be debt free. Everybody say that. Be debt free. But there is one debt that the Bible says we got to remain and leave it outstanding. Romans 13, 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to live debt-free. And the only debt he wants you to have toward one another is a debt of love. Because there was a debt insurmountable that we had on our lives that we could have never repaid. And the Bible says the Father sent his Son to make payment, to pay off the incredible debt that we had accumulated of God's wrath for our sin. God sent Jesus, his son, to die on that cross so that you can live death free. There is now no condemnation, no outstanding balance of God's wrath and anger to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are free people, why would you put yourself in slavery ever again? The only debt we, have, we ought to have toward one another is the debt of love. So I want you to look to your neighbor. Tell him, I owe you. I want to I want to uh, pray for a couple people. I'm just pray for them real quick. Uh, it doesn't have to be an emotional experience. What I experienced in my testimony, I want you to experience in your life. If you've made poor decisions, if you've spent money you don't have, and you've accumulated a great amount of debt, especially high interest debt. And you feel like, man, even if I commit to repaying this, it's going to take forever. 
remember my story. I committed myself to repaying it, and God met me in the middle. Our God's a gracious God. He wants to be good to you, but he's got to see in your heart an attitude of humbling yourself, freeing yourself from the slavery of money, renouncing that and being content with what we have, making a budget and committing to it. He's got to see that kind of attitude. And as you come before him with a commitment to repay all your debt, I believe the Lord is going to pour out and overflow your cup. Not only so that you can be debt free, but that you can experience his goodness in the land of the living. Let me close your eyes. If you're in here today and you've gotten yourself in a lot of financial debt. I'm talking like credit card debt, high interest debt. And you recognize that you've been just giving in to the to a heart of covetousness, materialism. That's keeping you from obeying the word, word will of God. It's keeping you from getting married. And you want those patterns to end today. And you want to be free. You want to be debt free. You feel like this is really a hard issue for you and you want to deal with it today. I want you to stand up and I want to pray for you. You don't have to be a big bad sinner to receive prayer in this house. The Holy Spirit's leading you to receive prayer. I want you to stand up. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. He does not want you to be yoked again. He does not want you to be yanked, burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He wants you to live free. He wants you to live free. But you got to make a commitment in your heart to start being a faithful steward, faithfully tithing, faithfully giving offering, faithfully spending only that which you actually have, faithfully committing yourself to paying off your debt. Stand up if that's you. I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for you. It's freedom. Freedom. He wants to bring freedom today.